hearts. Would you pray with me this morning? God, what an awesome, awesome truth in that song that just testifies to the truth in the scriptures that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Thank you that we have the privilege to live in the most challenging time ever in our country, perhaps, to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Thank you that you've entrusted a time to us where there is a need to be faithful, to be committed, to be bold in our understanding of the truth and our living of the truth and in our exercise of grace and mercy and forgiveness. Thank you, God, that we stand in a year that many of us thought just sounded so far off and so strange not too long ago. Here we are in 2020, and yet the church is alive, Lord Jesus. Our God is mighty. Your people are focused and committed. You are calling us to something greater than just existing. You're calling us to be victorious in the Lord. You're calling us to be steadfast. Though we might be persecuted in our future, you're calling us to stand firm. Though there may be a lot of discomfort in following the Lord and following his ways, you have given us more than enough grace to make it through. Thank you, Lord, so much for this church gathering today on this first Sunday in the year 2020 desiring to learn more about God, desiring to be more like God, desiring to love and to forgive and to give and give out grace to other people, desiring to live lives that are holy and that count for you. Thank you for this moment where the church comes together and we gather around your unfailing word and we are challenged by it. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Hey, go ahead and have a seat. I'm sure you've thought a lot about this or heard a lot about this, but can you believe it's 2020? Can you believe that you're writing that on your checks and when you see the date on your computer, it's 2020 that this day is here and we're not in flying cars and we're not, we haven't made Seattle into the 51st state, the People's Republic of Western Washington or anything that people said was going to happen. Here we are and it's 2020. You know, if you read and if you pay attention to what's going on in the church and in the kingdom of God, the church is losing a lot of ground in America. There are different parts of the world where it's flourishing and where it appears to be very, very alive, but we're losing a lot of ground in the United States of America. It would not take you but seconds to start Googling or just reading your news aggregate and to hear about how millennials don't come to church anymore. And, and if you don't know the different generations, these are the ones that are now having kids and are raising families and pursuing careers. You would read about how denominations are splitting up over social and cultural issues and how they're dwindling in size and how much of what is being touted as church growth in America is honestly a lot of sheep shuffling. Whereas certain kind of churches empty out, other ones fill up and fewer and fewer people are making a real and vibrant decision to be a disciple of God through Jesus Christ. I just want to be honest. I'll get to some encouragement as we go. But I think 
it's important to understand as we come into a brave new year what's really going on. And it's not for you and I to complain or to criticize. It's for you and I to say, God, what can be done? What can be done? What can I do in my little part of the world? And though the church is shrinking in its influence and in its numbers in America, at Southside in the year 2020, we intend to do just the opposite. We intend to see God's kingdom be greater than it was. We intend to see commitment and devotion and understanding and love for God's word to surpass anything we've ever experienced in our church. Even a couple months ago, we had a church meeting and we talked about Vision 2020. And even then, it seemed like a long time off. But here we are in 2020. And I want to tell you what my job is. On January 5th, 2020, I want to give you a reason to believe in God's church and your place in it. I want to give you a fire in your belly for some that will be a spark and some will be an annoying flame. I want to give you a passion for your life counting and God's work being greater in our lifetime in this church. What I'm not doing, whenever I give talks like this, there are certain people who think uh, we're reinventing the church. We're going to turn it into a drive-through taqueria. Uh, you know, that, what did he mean by that? I'm going to send you all out on bicycles with little religious things. I'm not talking about changing drastically anything. I'm not talking about some big rewrite because God is unchanging. His truth is everlasting. But it's my job and my privilege today to get you excited about living for Jesus Christ. And so I'm not going to be rolling out some big, um, you know, big, like intense change. I'm never attempting in these kind of talks to change much about what we do, but more to just call us to do what we say we do. Not reinventing the church, not starting a commune, but what I am doing on January 5th, 2020, is trying to give you a reason to get out of bed in regards to your faith with God every day, to remind you that you've given your life to God through the grace of Jesus Christ. Also, I think one of my privileges as a minister of the gospel is to try in these talks and in our discipleship and in our classes and small groups and ministries to try to get the best out of you that I possibly can. That's one of the burdens of spiritual leadership is to be continually calling for more and greater and better and more sincere when the tide is no, things are fine the way they are. Or I'm so messed up and confused in this other part of my life that I can't even focus on that right now. But I want to remind you from my talk today, part of my calling is to rattle your cage sometimes. Mark, that includes the elders even. That includes people on our staff. That includes all of us as brothers and sisters in Christ. And I want to ask you to just be real humble today. Like I said, I don't have a strange new teaching. But as I call us back to the center of Christianity this week and next, 
I want to ask you to do something that might be challenging for those of you who've walked with Jesus longer or better than I have or who have even founded this church, to have humility and say, God, do you have something to say in your word today? I would ask even just to have the same humility that I try to have when you challenge or critique or cajole or complain to me, that we can learn from one another and that God's word brings us all together on the same page. It is part of my job to disrupt your and my comfort and to find the perfect mix of how often to disrupt and how often to comfort. This is God's calling on my life. I would hope as you here today, some of you would find God's calling on your life. That though you are a teacher or though you are a shop owner or though you run a business out of your home or you run a more important business that is your home, that you would be taken and consumed with the call of Jesus Christ in your life like the scriptures call us to today. I wanna call you to something greater today. And I wanna use one of my favorite stories in the scriptures, Mark chapter eight. We're gonna look at the words of Jesus this week and next before we get back to our study of Philippians and follow along with me. I believe it's in your notes. It's also up on the screen, Mark eight twenty-seven through 38. Aren't you glad you came today though, by the way? And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, uh, John the Baptist. And others say, Elijah. And others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Don't want to go down that bunny trail, but it's not the time for the fullness of Jesus' identity and ministry to be revealed. That's why he charges them in that way. But I want to interrupt the story here to point out a couple things. Then and now, the world believes many things about Jesus. Amen? They believe many different things now, and they believed many different things then. And we shouldn't fault them or blame them at that point in time for being a little confused. And, and not everybody had the ears to hear yet or had had the privilege of hearing the truth from God. But the world believes many things about Jesus. But then, as now, God cares what you and I think about Jesus and who he is. There's not a more important thought that you or anyone you know could ever think than the thought, who do I say Jesus is? There's the famous uh, trilogy of Lewis and many others put forward of, of, is he a liar? Is he a Lord? Or is he a lunatic? He can't be all three. The Lord one is the only one that negates the other two. But if he says he's Lord and he's just a lunatic, we shouldn't follow him. If he says he's Lord and he's a liar, we shouldn't follow him. If he's a lunatic, then we shouldn't listen to anything he said. If he's a liar, we shouldn't listen to anything he said. But if he's the Lord, then all of a sudden everything hangs on who he is, what he said, what he confirms from his father. God cares what you think about Jesus. And I want you to hear that not just as a test, an answer on a test, 
that Jesus is the son of God, Jesus was born of a virgin, the things that we know in our heads. But in the same way, he put the question to Peter and the apostles, who do you say he is? Because when Peter said, you are the Christ, he stood up and said something incredible. He said, you are God. You are the deliverer. You are the redeemer. You are the forgiver. You are the Lord. And then we go on with the story. What did Peter mean? That's what I'm trying to, Peter says, you are the Christ. And I want you to think about this for a moment. The more we know someone, the more clear it is that they're not perfect, right? I have disappointed so many people because I bear the title pastor. And then they come over to my house and watch a football game with me. Or, or they just spend some time with me. And I'm not a bad guy. I'm pretty good on the curve. But just seeing that I don't glow that I don't talk to my children in hushed tones about their faith in the Lord Jesus, that I'm kind of, that's a huge disappointment. It doesn't take people but a few minutes of really being my friend or being in my life to know, that, oh man, well, he's not like up on this pedestal. And similarly with you and wherever you're at, if, you, if people think highly of you and they spend some time, it's, it's quite amazing, A, that anyone, but particularly Peter, spent so much time with Jesus and that led him not to go, oh, well, I saw him do this. I saw him say this. I heard that he treated this person this way. But it gives him more and more confirmation to say, you are the Christ. Isn't that kind of amazing? With more and more time with him, he is more and more certain of his answer. little side note, the more time that you and I spend with the Lord, it's the same way. We don't get bored with him. We don't go, oh, well, now I see that the Lord is only partly omniscient and omnibenevolent, which is the word Colin made up last week, but that he is even more so those things, even more so, even greater than I could ever imagine. Would any seasoned Christian say that's kind of true? Amen. The more time I spend with him, the more beautiful he becomes to me. There's something greater at work in the person of Jesus than just a religious crutch or just a great teacher. Verse 31 and I hope some of you know this story, but it says, Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man, and that's what he called himself in his humility, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. I love what it says here. And he said this plainly. Everything else had been kind of coded, and if you understand me, hear this right. But here he just lays it out, and you could pick the disciples' jaws up off the ground. Their eyes were large. This is not what they signed up for. He said plainly that the very people in power and in charge and that you're supposed to be looking up to religiously are going to kill me. And there's some good news at the end. I'll rise again. They don't even understand what he's talking about. He said this plainly. And then there's the famous incident. And Peter took him aside. The guy who just said, you are the Christ, took him aside and began to rebuke him. And the scriptures are strong here. Not reason with him, not argue with him, but rebuke him. He gets in Jesus' face like Peter did with so many people before and after this moment. And he says, no. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Some of the other gospels get even more, uh, a little bit more detail about what he says or what his attitude is. Verse 33, but turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan, for you 
are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. We see something important here because Peter's important. Peter's beloved. Peter is close to God. Peter just gave the great confession of the faith that many people feel started the church in some way. But for a church, we're extrapolating this from Peter's reaction, for a church to focus on things other than the suffering, death, and resurrection of Jesus is to risk doing the work of Satan. When Jesus tells the truth about the gospel message and Peter says no, he is then called Satan, a devil, a deceiver in front of his closest friends. Now I want you to note something that I think is really helpful as we do church together. Sometimes, sometimes, because you see Peter's awesome, but these other people are being talked about in here, the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, who we are trained to think, well, they're not that awesome. But sometimes the most resistant people to the work of Jesus are the most invested, Peter, and the most religious, most bound to their tradition or their preferences. And you'd get, you couldn't get two more different people at this era in time, really, than Peter and the scribes, Pharisees, and givers of the law and chief priests. The Pharisees are pointed out here that they are going to kill him. But Peter's great sin in this moment is self-interest, self-preservation. Verse 34, and calling the crowd to him now with his disciples, he said to them, and so he's including, he's enlarging the circle, he brings more people in. He says, if anyone would come after me, Let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man or a woman, of course, to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. I want to center us on January 5th, 2020 in some simple and ongoing Christian faith that is related and communicated through the mouth of Jesus Christ in Mark chapter 8. First thing that jumps out of the page to me is deny yourself. That this is a foundational and fundamental message of our faith. We spend a lot of time in our church talking about the joy that goes with that, the grace that makes it possible the forbearance and forgiveness of God when we fall short in those things. But just plainly speaking is this call through Jesus to deny yourself in your will, in all things, great and small, sometimes even give up things that are pleasant and pleasing and pleasurable, but to do it continually. As the scripture says today, daily take up the cross, daily deny oneself. 
This is simple and ongoing Christian faith. These are anchors and callbacks to how I live my life from the mouth of Jesus. Deny myself, take up my cross. I feel so bad when I, I've been here so long if I'm repeating things that, and of course, so many of you have heard this and recognized this before, but Jesus had not gone to the cross yet. So this is an especially, this is an especially awkward and threatening thing for them to hear. It's not been religiousized. It's not been turned into a necklace. It's not been turned into a logo for the church yet. It's not even been an event that Jesus partook in when he was up on the cross and there were verifiable uh, things happening in the atmosphere and in the surrounding cities and all the things that are recorded in the Bible. This is before all of that. He's basically telling them, if you want to come after me, you got to deny yourself and you need to take up that instrument of death. Total commitment, even when painful. And there's a touch in there that you and I experience today that most real Christians have. There's even a sense of shame that's attached to us sometimes in our belief. Can you believe how hard you and I work to be good and loving and gracious in this world? We're trying so hard as it changes daily to love and accept and to understand and to not judge and to play by the rules of our culture? Do some of you just feel like that is just so hard and so constant and so all the time? And yet, as we strive to do that, we're called such terrible things. We're made to believe that we're somehow antique and out of it and narrow-minded, and just were the opposite as people do the ungodly, we're accused of being unspiritual or unaccepting or whatever it is, and, and all of these things. Can you even believe, and then I bring that in, that there's a sense of taking up your cross is not a euphemism, or a, well, I'm going to take up my cross, but it's really all joy and abundance and things are laid in my lap and I have victory all the time. Taking up my cross sometimes feels the worst, doesn't it? I maybe went off a little bit too much on that. That's also my job. But to realize that taking up your cross is not supposed to sound pleasant and wonderful and thank you very much, sir, may I have another but here's why it's so cool. You almost miss it if you want to live that self-denying, miserable Christian life, but simple and ongoing Christian faith starts with come after me, follow Jesus. Follow Jesus. And what I don't want to miss whenever you see that word disciple or when it talks about following Jesus, that it is not an offer that Jesus or the disciples or the apostles when they were called that gave where you go, okay, I guess I better follow Jesus. When the rich young ruler was told, you know, get rid of all that stuff, give to the poor and follow Jesus. It's not this, okay, I should do that. When the disciples dropped their fishing nets, walked away from the family business, it wasn't like, well, I know I'm supposed to do this. We're being offered the greatest offer in the history of mankind to follow Jesus. 
it's kind of buried in there and we bring our thinking to it where we feel like people are always asking me to give so much and to do so much and to go to so much. But Jesus was saying, here's the deal. Lay down all your sin. Lay down all your shame. Lay down all of that you don't fit in. Lay down all of that life hasn't worked out. Lay down all of that just awkwardness and discomfort that comes in this world. And in exchange, may I give you blessing and joy and my very presence. And simple ongoing faith as described in this passage, we're to deny ourselves, to take up our cross, but it's to follow Jesus. And we are entitled to all the blessings of God that go with that beautiful word of discipleship. I want to challenge you to something greater today. I want to approach this through your heart, what it might mean to follow Jesus Christ. Any parents in the room today in active duty or otherwise? Okay. Does it ever stop, really, being a parent? No. And I please don't answer everything out loud when it comes to this topic. But it never stops but in its wholesome best, and we all have issues and, you know, it's all my mother's fault and all that kind of stuff. But at the end of the day, being a parent is a supreme joy. It's a supreme responsibility. And whether you just get it for a moment or you have the kind of kids where you just look at them all the time and you're like, wow, their parents were amazing. Oh, wait, it was us. It's a joy, man, but it is a deep responsibility. And if you ever do parenting half-hearted or phone it in, which is very tempting at all ages, you know in your heart of hearts that you're not supposed to do that, right? How many of us have had parents, as parents have had moments where we've kind of backed off a little bit when we shouldn't have and we go, I know I'm going to pay for that, but I really want to watch this game right now. I know I'm going to pay for that, but it can't be every day that I have to parent my kids, right? I can't be expected to do this all the time. Basic, simple, ongoing Christian faith is like unto that in this way. I follow Jesus. Me, I'm a parent. I'll always be a parent whether they need me or not. That's what I am. But I will always be a follower of Jesus. That's who I am. I might take a vacation certain days for my responsibilities to deny myself, take up my cross, or follow Jesus. I may take the easy way sometimes. I may push it out of my mind when I would rather respond with not denying myself and not taking up my cross and not following Jesus or his way. But it's who I am, and I'm always miserable when I'm in tension with those duties and delights of being a follower of God. It's who I am. It's what I do. He is the defining characteristic of my life. Him, Jesus. Is that true for you? What might it mean for us specifically? Giving you some scriptures if you want to look at this more later. But what might it mean as a church on the precipice of 2020 in a shrinking American church, in a confusing moral time, it doesn't mean less for us. It means more. It doesn't mean giving up or giving in. It means going for it. It'll mean greater commitment for us. Philippians 1.6, Paul says, For to me, whether I live or I die, it's all about Jesus. 
It means greater consistency for us. We can lose someone in the faith by just them missing a church service or two these days because their proximity to a strong and challenging gospel accountability is so poor. So we've got to do more. Hebrews 10, 24, don't forsake the assembling. Let's live and encourage one another as long as it's called today. Greater compassion. It's a challenge for us to be less critical of the culture and more compassionate. Jesus, Matthew 9, 36 through 37, he looks out over the crowds and his guts become full with pain and with anguish because he doesn't want to judge them or criticize them. He says, oh, they look harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Does that not describe so much of what you've seen the last month or so? It means greater community. The more combat that was coming against the church, there was more call to get together. Acts 2, 42 through 47, which encapsulates all the pillars of our church and the foundation of God's word and the goal of the life change that comes through regeneration in Jesus Christ, greater community. And then I think, somebody get that, and then I think it's more important, there's a doctrine in the scriptures that is not talked about a lot it's the doctrine of perseverance. It's going to take greater stick to for the church. As a young Christian, I would read the scriptures that talked about blessed are those who make it to the end, blessed are those who keep their commitment and don't fail, and I would think, well, that seems against the, do- the doctrine of grace, you know, the reality that we are saved by grace. It's not through any of our efforts. But as I've grown and I've understood, as the Bible itself, itself just lays out so plainly and so many different times, so beautifully in Matthew 13 with the wheat and the tares and the the, uh, kingdom and, and the seed that has fallen by the side of the road. There's this sense like we get in Philippians 3, 12 through 13, that though I have not laid hold of it yet, I strive forward, pressing on towards the upward call in Christ Jesus. And so I want you to think about in terms of your church that you belong to, your, this family of families, your calling in your life, what is it to have greater commitment, greater consistency, compassion, community, constancy? What does that mean for you? It means something greater for us in our future than what's in our past. The Bible's so awesome because this could end here, this scripture could end here and we all should just say yep he's right Jesus is right but then there's this beautiful reward that the Holy Spirit has laid right after this story in the next chapter of Mark and remember those chapters and those numbers they weren't there this is just to help us find the Bible so immediately after this story comes this next story in Mark chapter 9 is there any reward after six days Jesus took with him Peter and James and John. Those were the three that were the closest to him. And he led them up a high mountain by themselves. Remember, this is after the deny death, come after me talk. And he says, you three, come with me. And he, Jesus, was transfigured before them. His clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them 
as they looked at Jesus, Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Teacher, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they saw They no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. Is there a reward for this denial, for this taking up my cross, for this making Jesus my every captive thought, my leader, my captain, my Lord, the center of my life? We get to see God. And I'm not trying to promise a personal transfiguration for you when I share that from Mark 9. But I share the encouragement that the Lord gave to his inner circle immediately after that talk. We get to see God. But then do you notice how, boom, lights are out, back to work. There's just that moment. That moment of, wow, it's all true. He's there. Oh, Elijah, Moses, that's important. This all fits together somehow. Peter, like he wants to do, is like, this is so great. Let's make tents. That's the best he can come up with. And I love the scripture. The scripture is so real. There's no other pseudo holy scripture that puts things in like this. Peter says that, and the Holy Spirit inspires the author of Mark to say, he said that because he did not know what to say. These are the things about the Bible that are so rich and are so beautiful because you're not going to read the Koran or the writings that the Mormons put out there and find little moments of reality like this. And it's beautiful. It's unmistakable. It's different than anything else you'll ever come across. And that's not the point of the sermon, but wow, 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 God, you're so cool. But I love that we get to see God. We get to have this reality now of closeness to him and communion with him. But it really is like it was for the disciples. Okay, hope you enjoyed that. It's time to get back to work. And we don't crave the transfiguration or the power or the miracles. We are blessed when they come. But we've been put here to work for the Lord by his grace, by his power. It's sad to me that I have to go so far back to find someone like this in American culture But when I think of someone who is single-minded and devoted to the cause of Jesus, I think of the Reverend Billy Graham. And I wish there was more contemporary things. I don't think Kanye's quite there yet. And what you might not have heard is that the night before the crusade that really launched Billy Graham in 1949, he was going into Los Angeles, California, which then as now was not thought of as a ripe place to talk about the uniqueness of Jesus Christ. And this is before he was a national figure, before Hearst put him in all of his papers as he was at that uh, event that night and for that moment and maybe for good received the truth of the gospel. At that, before that night, another evangelist, a co-worker in the gospel was trying to convince Reverend Graham that Billy would get more followers and more converts if he would stop talking about the Bible and all the supernatural stuff and how the Bible could be trusted and was inspired. This really rocked Billy Graham. And this was not as common in that time as it is now, at least in the church, for someone to start shooting holes in the Bible. 
He was starting to doubt that maybe his views were old-fashioned. Maybe it was because of how mom and dad had raised him. And he struggled with doubt about the authority and the inerrancy of the Bible. One night, Reverend Graham falls on his face and he decides, I am not leaving this position until I leave this moment understanding if this is true or not. And he wrestled with God all night. He cried out to the Lord. He cried tears. And at the end of it, he did not, God did not convince him that everything was true and that everything was as he'd always believed. What happened was that night he decided by faith that I believe in who God is and what he said and what he's done. That spiritual decision, which was not completely confirmed scientifically or with a sign, he wrestled with his faith and that spiritual decision he made that night overruled all doubt and gave Graham a new authority and passion to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. Weeks later, he rolls into in Los Angeles and what was supposed to go for three weeks went eight weeks, a room that was supposed to hold 3,000. They did everything they could, not a room, a tent, uh, a bigger one than the one Peter was talking about. They put 3,000 additional chairs in there and every night of the week for eight weeks, 350,000 people came and heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. Here's what's kind of crazy. History records that only 3,000 of them made decisions for Jesus Christ. And that was typically the experience. All this work, all this prayer, all this passion, all this organizing. And like the Bible promised, the road is narrow and the way is narrow for those who will receive Christ and the path to destruction is broad. With total devotion to God, that man, like you and I can today, decided to believe in the totality and the call of God's word and did something great for him. Would you pray with me? I just want to invite you to take a moment and reflect on God's word and God's truth, on the challenge of taking up a cross and denying oneself but the simpler challenge of just following Jesus. Lord, I pray, would you have us still do those things? Would you have us still centered on what can a man give in exchange for his soul? Would you have us still deny ourselves and take up our cross and come up after you? Lord, would you still, even though it's complicated and complex and sometimes confusing, would you still want us to follow you and to trust you and to make that decision by faith, not by works that anyone could boast, but by faith that centering my life on Jesus Christ is the right thing to do, is the worthy thing to do is the sensible in light of eternity thing to do God I pray that someone today would just get really called by you today 
I pray that everyone would apply your truth. And many of us have been doing this a long time and, and we hedge our bets and we want to do and be responsible and wise and, and not get too excited in a church service. But I pray that someone actually would today. And I thank God for those who are thoughtful and, and, and reasonable and are going to really think about this. But I also pray that, that this would be the, the day that someone would truly center their lives on you in a new and fresh way. We pray that in whatever happens in this room and beyond, that you would be glorified, God, that your son, Jesus Christ, would be lifted up and that we would not forget the power of the Holy Spirit as you live through us. It's in your name we all pray.